The first speaker joins us uh, from the BBC. We've had uh, a lot of talk about innovation. We've had a lot of talk about how does radio grow itself. Um, I saw him earlier this year with our partner at Radio Days Europe. Uh, George Wright joins us from the BBC. Uh, he works very much in an internet and development space, and uh, he'll be with us for two days sharing what he'd like to consider the future of radio. Thank you, George. Thanks very much, Tim. And thanks for having me here. This is my uh, first time uh, in South Africa, and it's lovely. Uh, it's also brilliant to be out of Britain at the moment, I have to say. So uh, a little bit about um, what I'm going to speak about today. Uh, it's about um, putting innovation at the heart of the radio production process. Um, mostly today is more around production itself and listeners. And tomorrow there will be a little bit more about technical stuff. But I am from R&D, so when I say today is not technical, there are some graphs, but not many. But for us, you know, it's about... Um, putting the listener at the heart of what we do and bringing the listener more involved in the production process and bringing indies with us uh, as well as bringing production colleagues with us. So BBC Research and Development, um, we have three labs um, based in the centre of London, uh, West London and Salford in, in Manchester. Uh, I run the central London one, which is the best one. Um, uh, we have about 200 engineers in, 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 in the three labs in total. Uh, so white coat lab, kind of technicians, researchers, user experience, scientists, production staff. Um, many of us have production backgrounds. I have uh, a, a background in radio production, uh, local radio at the BBC, uh, moving on to network. Um, and a number of my colleagues have moved, basically, as they put it, getting further away from the listener. Um, but the, the reason that we do this is because we, we, we think that making radio is something that's best done as a team and that we think that radio innovation hasn't even started yet. So the idea that radio stopped about sometime in the 70s, possibly with FM, uh, maybe in the 90s with DAB, um, we think is, is wrong and we think that radio is stronger than ever and the listenership in the UK at least bears that out. Um, one of the things that gets us out of bed in the morning is problems. Um, radio has many problems. Um, how do we best solve those problems? Well, we do it with prototyping. Um, so, radio, I mean, Helen uh, has given you a, a bit of background yesterday, but um, as part of my speech, radio at the BBC, um, we have a large amount of in-house production. Um, so, uh, that, that's moving more towards a, a mixed economy of independence and um, uh, in-house. In we have 10 national networks and one um, worldwide network and 70 local networks. And just like um, in many uh, areas around the world, we're having to do which respect audio as a medium, they don't just treat it as like TV but without any of the pictures, um, which is often uh, a, a problem that we see, especially from technology vendors. They'll say, well, we've done this for TV, blah, 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 you know, a bit of kit, so it's easy for you. And then we say, well, we haven't got any pictures. And then they say, oh, no, that means all our kit won't work. And I'll talk a bit about how we try to visualize radio both kind of programmatically, but also by working with the production teams. What does radio look like on the web? Often, as you'll be aware, it looks like maybe some now playing, maybe some coming up next. That's not hugely engaging in a world where people have got Spotify or YouTube or whatever. Um, so building front ends for audio on the web is a, is a particular challenge. Um, and we can't also, we can't just mirror the old ways of listening. 
So seeing computers where they have uh, a, 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 an icon that shows that you're listening or to listen, and it's a picture of a CD player. Uh, how does that work if you're eight? You know, you've never seen a CD player, so a picture of a CD player, why does that work? So we can't just use visual metaphors from yesterday to represent radio of tomorrow. Um, how to capture audio. So um, I'll talk a bit more about this tomorrow, about some of the work we've been doing to shift audio around using IP, but capturing it in a way that makes sense for the listener, where we don't just throw away the offcuts, uh, where we can follow it through the production chain. And how to change the radio listening experience so we keep the best bits of the old way of doing it with the best bits of tomorrow's way. If there's anything that I say that isn't clear as we go along, please do shout. But I've built in time for questions at the end as well for anything um, um, that I haven't covered. So we've, you know, I've divided up today into a few things. So new programs that we've worked with teams on. Um, Archives of programs of ongoing shows, archives of a long-running network, capturing audio in a better way, and then new formats and devices. So this is an example of a, a, a new show. So this was a, a, a Radio 4, which is our main kind of speech and intelligent drama network, um, which we were in at the production process right at the beginning, literally at the away day where the writers went to a guest house to talk about what this might mean. Um, so this is a long-running show. It began uh, in t 2014, the 100th anniversary of the, 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 the First World War, and runs for the, the entirety of the, um, uh, uh, kind of in real time, 100 years on. So um, what we did was we, we worked with them to try and think about what it meant to put audio on the web with something that was brand new for people but told stories that they knew well, e.g. the stories of the, the, the First World War. So with this, we... Um, worked with an illustrator, and this was the, the key for us to capture it, was to work with an illustrator from day one to produce images which brought the stories to life. Um, now this was an example of something where we hit a problem, because with the production team, the production team were really up for working with us, but the illustrator obviously didn't work for free. The illustrator cost a sum of money. Now it was a small, relatively small sum, it was a small five-figure sum, but this was a brand new budget line for them. They'd never had to pay for an illustrator before. So they'd gone from not having a cost of zero to a cost of whatever, small five figures, which was a massive jump, but compared to the cost of the, the whole program was tiny. So, but we had to press. They were really keen to work with us. They were really keen to do some new stuff. They were really keen to get their stories on the web and told for the first time using visuals. But then we hit this problem where they weren't, they literally they, they couldn't find a production code for pay for illustrator and so for us that's an example of the sort of problems that we see where there's something where there's a switch that's needed and then you have to change within the production process itself so what we did was we worked the illustrator basically for free to show them one prototype of what this could mean um, we, we we worked with them and got their trust we gained their trust so I mentioned at the beginning about coming from a production background a lot of the times when we see um, people that come from a more internet-first approach, where content, they call it, uh, we don't like the word content, you know, it's programs, right? It's people and it's programs. So assuming that the technical stuff is the hard stuff and telling the story is the easy stuff is something that we see time and time again when we work with people who are coming to content for the first time. 
And so for us, the stories are as hard as they've ever been. And it's great if you're working with production teams that know how to tell the stories, but the technology is there to tell them better, to make them stronger, and also to get the, the stories to the listeners in new and engaging ways. So when I put C on here, iterated, that's R&D speak for we made a load of mistakes and then we went back and we corrected them. But because we were doing this for the first time with the production team, there was a whole series of hurdles that we had to go through that we had to stop and then go back literally to the drawing board. We do a lot of paper prototyping in my team. I'll come on and talk later about how we try and invent new forms of radios. Um, one of the things that we have learned over the years is that when we're asking people what they think or when we're putting new ideas in front of them, if they see a shiny prototype web thing with a load of BBC logos on it, a lot of the time they say, that looks great. Because they kind of don't want to sort of tell us that they don't want to let us down, which is like when we're actively seeking their feedback, it's kind of difficult. So we do a lot of cardboard prototyping. We do a lot of prototyping with whiteboards. So to give an example of something that we worked on where we were attempting to build, um, in R&D speak, multimodal uh, listening environments, so in sensible speak, uh, different rooms in your house have different radio stations in. And so we followed people around their home with um, just basically laptops with speakers attached to them that when they went into one room, the radio changed. And we were attempting to see, is that something people want? That's the sort of thing that at technology conferences, a lot of people say, oh, that would be brilliant. You know, Bill Gates has got one. I mean, Bill Gates has got a load of things, but does that mean that normal people want that? But having done this, where we followed them around and we flicked a switch when they went into the kitchen and did it go to a, 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 a recipe, when they went into the bedroom, did it go to a children's story? So we did this with them. At the end, they said, can we keep this? And we said, keep what? Keep BBC staff in your house running after you with laptops that change when you go in different rooms? They'd abstracted the new thing to the point that they thought it was great and wanted to keep it. So because of that, when we're prototyping, we prototype with cardboard and paper often or with simple lash-ups in order to allow people to feel that they actually can change it. And sometimes we give them the pens themselves. So like I say here, iterated here for us means changing as we go along. Just as part of a radio production, you'll be changing things as you go along. But this was changing it with new technology. So feedback from the production teams, that's a euphemism for them saying a lot this is rubbish, this is awful, change it. And it took time to build the confidence for, for, for them to understand that we were actively seeking their input because we were building something together. In the past, and I talk, I'll talk about this later, about innovation can't be something you bolt on at the end because otherwise the production team has to get their show done and then they have to tick a box to say they've done something innovative. And that way you get, you get worse than if you weren't doing something. Because the, the show itself isn't as good, because they've got half an ear or half a mind on doing the new thing. And the new thing isn't good, because it's something you've bolted on at the end, and there's nothing gained about working together. So building trust, both with the teams that you're working with and the team, your, your own your innovation team, so that it's generally a two-way collaborative process. Oh, that's it. That's an interesting font. Oh, dear. That's my fault, probably. Um, so... What we built with that was a, a, a proof of concept um, prototype of a web platform to allow catch-up, recapture, and, and understanding. Um, if you go to the um, URL that's on screen here, 
homefront.ch.bbc.co.uk, you can experience this for real. Uh, and a lot of the stuff that we work on um, is, is live with um, a lot of caveats that this is experimental and so on. Um, and there's a lot of um, trust, trust issues with long-running shows where they're wary about doing new things and putting them in front of listeners. But if you don't do that, they stay in a box marked innovation. So on our research and development site, there's a lot of low-level stuff that's in effect for other research and development teams. But for us, it's about getting it in front of real listeners. So prototyping on the web and using the web as a platform um, is, 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 is vital. Um, and so having done it with um, Homefront, for us to, to then move on and to do it with um, The Archers, which is one of our longest-running uh, radio dramas, um, it has 65 years of, of, of history in it. Um, and it has a fairly uh, enthusiastic listener base who, who know the show inside out, really. And the opportunity for us here came when um, the Archers used to have a, a, um, a, an archive that was a filing, ca a filing cabinet. Um, and that developed in the early stages of it when it was literally about, have we used this, um, this scene before? Have we set it in this farmhouse's annex before? And then at some point, I think in the 60s, they made an error. Uh, and the estate agent's house, they referred to a bedroom. And the, the listeners wrote in in the many hundreds to say, no, 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 no. Steve's house famously has only got two bedrooms. And that, that was a, a source of argument with, 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 with his wife for many years. And the production team's memory there, because they were, building a daily, uh, they were building a daily radio show. And from then it was about building a show and keeping going. But for the audience, this was something that was so successful because it had created something real in the listeners' heads. Um, people have constructed their own maps of, 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 of Ambridge, where the archers set. So having a, a, a filing cabinet and an archivist, so Camilla was the archivist, um, which at, at one point in time was an actual physical filing cabinet, and at some point I think moved to a, a COBOL database. So if anyone, you know, that, that's quite an old-fashioned way uh, of, 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 of storing things. And then Camilla was going to retire. And so um, our work on this became something which could be used for, for real. So you can see here, um, there is uh, 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 systems which have been captured um, to allow the production teams to then go in and see um, specific TX dates with the synopsis of it. And moving from that to a, um, a kind of listener-facing prototype, where there's a back-end here, CMS, that allows people to put in um, things by uh, place, by character, and so on. And, and with this, it builds a living, breathing um, um, system as well as a back-end that they can use. And for us, the, um, the difference with the approach from this, from the way that the BBC's traditionally done kind of websites about programmes is we have treated them as if they were um, billings information for paying a show. The TX date was blah, the cast and crew was blah, um, um, this was the, um, the, 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 the date of production. Listeners don't think like that. They do not think, hmm, when was the show that was TX'd on blah, blah, blah? Wh who was the cast and crew of that? They think, oh, I like Helen Archer. Where's she been in Ambridge? What storylines has she been involved with? So taking something that was quite a technical back-end CMS thing and building something which meant that people can engage with the archers um, was something that we were really proud of. 
So it mixes the technology behind it. Um, it mixes the um, respect for, you know, we've got a deep respect for this, this show. Um, we've built something called an Archer's Avoider that I'll come on to later. Um, but uh, we have a deep respect for this show and we built the trust of the production teams as we went along. How am I doing for time? So we look good. Okay. Um, so why we did it? We did it to respect the thing of the show, to improve accuracy. It helped save money. It helped flag stories. Um, and now it's available to all our drama now. So we've graduated through kind of new show um, where we can experiment, um, show that is, is a part of the BBC's history and we have to, you know, respect to something that now we've taken that and it's always nice when we start with radio and then say to TV, oh, you can have a bit of this as well rather than the other way around where radio is kind of the afterthought. So we then prototyped something for one of the BBC's new TV shows which is called Peaky Blinders, um, showed that to the production team and they loved it and then that went live. And you can see the... Um, the um, the fidelity gets richer as we go along, not because this is TV, but because the prototypes have been getting more advanced as we go. And that's something that, for us, the fidelity of the prototype is important. Some things are pretty simple and quite sketched. Other things are more thought through. Other things are more finished. Um, but it's about judging how much effort you put into the finished thing as opposed to the thing you're trying to prove. And I, I can't say that we ever get that right, because... Whatever show we work on, people want it to look as shiny as the shiniest thing we've ever se they've ever seen. And that isn't always possible. So getting the mix right between finding the problem that we're trying to solve with presenting it to the, start, the, the, the production team, to presenting it with the listeners, that triangle will never be perfect. Um, so now I'm going to talk about um, uh, a different sort of archive problem. So the World Service's English language output... Um, was meticulously catalogued um, kind of and saved to disk uh, audio-wise um, and had absolutely no metadata attached to it. So they came to us saying, we've got not everything the World Service has ever put out, but a selection of it over a 60-year period, so 3.5 years of audio if you listen to it end-to-end, -end, um, with 500 uh, terabytes of uh, audio, with no metadata at all or even worse than no metadata, wrong metadata. So a load of programs that were allegedly made in uh, 1899, a load of programs made in 2074, a load of programs made on the 1st of January 1970. Um, uh, this was just people who catalogued the metadata. Yeah, 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 boom, boom, boom. Oh, I need to enter something, blah, 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 bash it in. Um, and so um, this is the sort of problem we like. Um, and so what we did was we built something which um, is speech recognition for English as is spoken on the world service. So most speech recognition um, is based around two things. One, English as is spoken by West Coast American software engineers. Two, the sort of things those people want their computer to do. Make me a coffee, get me a soda. Um, the, the English as spoken on the world service is a bit different to that. It goes back 60 years. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about Brecht. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, uh, the, 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 there's a lot of stuff about specific medical scientific stuff. Um, so we had to adapt um, speech recognition tools to uh, grab this audio and then work out what it was about. Having done that, we then built a tagging system which let people say, oh yeah, your system is or isn't right. 
that show is about that. It isn't about that. Uh, and we opened it up to listeners to, to kind of experiment with. Um, and you can see here that um, as we add the number of users to it, and then we add the uh, amount of people who are editing, and then the accuracy of the editing, um, once we hit, so up to here, um, when we've got a few listeners, um, people aren't really editing. The more we add after that, they don't really edit more. We ended up with a hardcore group of about a thousand key people who were editing this audio um, for us and, and tagging it. And then by the end, we were pretty happy that uh, the thing that we thought this audio was about the listeners thought it was about. So it, you know, our system had some quirks. Whenever it, 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 it heard the word George, it thought it was about Blackadder because of George from Blackadder. So anything with George Bush in it, um, it thought was about Blackadder. Um, so um, uh, that's a terrible diagram. Um, this is basically the audio and then the tags in it. This is now completed and now on the BBC's uh, World Service site, not all of them, because we had an exciting amount of rights and um, trying to clear uh, audio with the former East German state orchestras was a particular delight. Um, uh, that's now, in aspect, transferred. It's finished. There are now about 40,000 more programs available to listen on the BBC site and listen in perpetuity with uh, accurate, where accurate is about 80 to 90% accurate metadata because of the system we built. And now that's something that we can use for other audio. Um, and so for us, that's a fantastic success. If it was a, a, a real problem with a load of audio that had nothing attached to it, with listeners can now listen, and we've built something which actively seeks kind of listener input to tag up and down. Um, so the, the stuff I've been talking about so far has been about programs that have kind of been been made or that we're beginning to, to, to make. That this paradigm here called object-based is something that's coming along and is going to prove a real challenge but also a real opportunity to program makers. So within traditional broadcasting, it's pretty clear. You record something. Da -da, you might even edit it. Yay. It's then turned into a show that might be 30 minutes long. Um, it's then broadcast. It's put on the internet. Either way, same sort of thing, and then people can listen to it. Right, there you go. Am I done now? No. Um, Object-based broadcasting. You make a program in a studio or on location. Every bit of audio or everything that's shot in that is an object. That means you don't record two people speaking, mix them, then transmit it. You record two people speaking. As and when you transmit it, you transmit both both of what they're saying, the device then allows you to, I want to listen to that person more, I want to listen to that person more, I want to hear behind that person. So what this doesn't do is choose your own adventure. It doesn't say, I'm going to make a, a Shakespeare play and the listener's going to get to say how it ends. Because yeah. um, it, it means that we can tailor the listening for the listener. The listener might be hard of hearing. Um, the listener might want to go more in depth around the, 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 the person A. The device they're listening on might not be able to ha have visuals. Uh, they might be in the car, so uh, they, 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 they don't want to do anything fancy. They just want to press play on their thing and listen to it. When they get home, because it's object-based, we've been able to follow it through. So here's the stuff you missed because you're in your car. 
So object-based stuff, I'll go more in depth in tomorrow, but object-based as a new way of recording and making programs is something which is day zero right now. Um, so in the BBC, we're experimenting with this. Um, so one example is we've built a, a weather forecaster that allows you to see or not see certain areas of, of the UK because you're really only interested in the weather either where you are or where you're going to be. Um, this also has a large a series of ramifications for devices um, because building object-aware devices is something that not many people are doing. Um, so that allows us to do things like surround trials where um, when we did a previous ones, we've had to, every single bit of the um, program has to be tailored around the specific trial we're doing. So we've had to make a load of changes to the production, we've had to make a load of changes to the, 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 the listing system to enable surround sound. If we built it in an object way, you could say every program could be in surround sound if it was recorded right and they had the right device. Does that mean that every program should be? No. Uh, and not everything that could be, should be. And part of what we do in R&D is to work with program makers to, to get that across. So often people will see something fantastic. Um, for example, um, Glastonbury. We've done a trials at Glastonbury where there are different stages available at the Glastonbury Festival. And uh, you can, within uh, a system like this, you can say, I want to hear more from that stage and less from this stage. People have come to us to do that in an event where there's only one stage. And it's like, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I can't even com compute that. Um, it, 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 you know, part of what we do is attempt to, to build things that suit the listener, the program, and the device. And getting that triangle right is kind of where we are. Um, so one of the problems that we see with, with new ways of... Um, building programs and new ways of getting them to programs is that we, we have to send a whole load of extra information about um, the programs to the, the devices. So attempting to make broadcast keep broadcast as it is. FM, DAB, AM, shortwave, these are very good ways of getting radio to, to people. Um, adding extra information to those programs um, the way that we've, we, we are doing that in the BBC is sending extra information alongside the broadcast, which then enables the device to say, ah, uh, I'm a radio, but I can show slideshow, so show me some slideshow information. So this is a, a, a system that we've got called Radio DNS, which is a worldwide system, um, and um, we're, we're rolling out bit by bit. Um, we're seeing some teething problems with it. Uh, the, a, lot, a number of the devices that we built the first stuff on were very, very expensive like 200 pound expensive, um, and they've stuck there for ages. Um, so um, for us to try and build this down to a low cost model is important. Um, I mean, you can see here, this is an example where the, the BBC and its competitors have worked on this in order to allow listeners to switch between different stations with extra services on the same device. Um, you know, the BBC was founded because commercial radio in the UK wanted different radios for different programs. Um, with the internet, we're in danger of going that way, again, with different non-complementary um, uh, and non-programmatic um, uh, uh, 
devices that are, you know, Sonos has got one system, Apple's got another. Um, one of the things the BBC has to try and do is to build simpler ways to allow people to use the same device to agree on technology and compete on content. And this, for us, is one of the, the key things. Technology vendors always want there to be something different about their system. And for us, with a, a fixed, you know, not necessarily limited, but a fixed sum of money, we can't build such and such a service for such and such a, a device. And, you know, I talked earlier about some of the problems about working with West Coast American technology vendors. Well, we were working with one where we said, okay, well, your system will mean that we have to change our FM transmitter. And the, the, the FM transmitter network in the United States is quite metro, so maybe one or two transmitters per station. And the person said, well, just change your, change your transmitters then. And we said, well, we've got 1,400 of them in the UK alone. So for us, it's not an option to change what we do to fit the technology that is sold. We have to build something which works across devices. Um, you know, I talked a bit at the beginning how radios haven't changed much since the 70s. Competition is growing. Um, we need to give listeners, sorry about that typo, the chance, we gave listeners the chance to change the device and ran a collaborative project to build new radios. Um, so what we did was we basically, we took, we went to a load of radio workshops in the UK and we went to a load of listeners in the UK and we asked them what they did and didn't like about radio. So they came up with a whole series of things. They wanted to turn off any music. They wanted to turn the archers off. Um, they, they, they wanted to skip news. They wanted only to hear sport. So we built an open source system at radiodan.org that uses a really, uh, ex a really cheap um, a Raspberry Pi device to then build a, an IP radio We've done the heavy lifting of all of the tuning, finding the Wi-Fi network, audio out, all that sort of stuff, to allow people to build on that, and that's available now. Um, so you can see that I talked earlier about fidelity. We moved from literally post-it notes through to literally cardboard. Then, like this thing doesn't work, right? <laughs> it's just a box. It says Archer's Avoider. Then we sort of get it working, and then we've got some kits and we tell everyone how to do this on our site. So that, the total cost of equipment, uh, of components for that device is about 50 pound and we expect that to go down. Um, so I'll, I'll end with talking about two kind of ways of doing R&D that, that we do and that we think both have utility. So in-house R&D when you're, when you're making radio. So you get the continuity of peoples and systems and relationships. You can work within these and third parties as well. You can understand your company or your organization's kind of values and timelines. It could be cheaper because you've got them in-house. In-house staff, they're often cheaper than kind of, you know, going out-house. We can develop staff over time, and you can develop a pipeline through from the idea onwards. Um, when you work with indies or startups, you can get new ideas in. That could be cheaper. You can get new voices and new kind of experiences and new histories on air. Uh, and a simple process theoretically can make it better, but you do need a common platform for this because you can't change two things at the same time. If you're attempting to change like someone's building a new program for you and you're trying to change the way we get that to people, it's impossible. The, the sort of radios I talked about building earlier there, in the beginning, those are with existing programs. Changing two things at the same time is we've seen very, very hard. Um, you know, innovation can't be a bolt-on. So, don't scare the horses there. Often when we go and talk to radio colleagues, when we begin by saying that we've worked in radio, we've made radio. They're 
oh, thank God for that. A bloke said to me, oh, you're not just going to come along and tell us we're all crap. No. Um, Multi-skilled teams are essential. And software is a kind of way of doing it. Oh, great. We've got a new software way of doing it. Well, the hardware way sometimes worked really well, and the software way is broken. So software doesn't solve all problems. Um, the listeners are keen to explore new things, and they are um, in a way that perhaps sometimes production staff aren't. They're quite close to the production, and they have a lot invested in it. Listeners, if you tell them and you don't surprise them, listeners are happy if things sometimes break. Sometimes. We don't mean fall off air, but if you say this is an experimental prototype and things might break and then it breaks and then no one dies, then, oh, thank God for that. And for us, it's about better for everyone to try and fail rather than stay still. And that, that last thing is always in flux because there's always a tension between people who want to experiment with people that actually quite like it the way it is now. Okay. We'll take four questions from the floor, and I'd like to start with one. Uh, how much money do you spend every year doing this? How much do we save or spend? Well, how much do you spend and how much do you think you save? Um, so, specifically for radio, we probably spend a million pounds. The BBC as a whole spends a million pounds a year on doing this sort of stuff for radio. And of the stuff that you develop... Yes. How much actually gets used? 95%. Uh, How much of that is a success? 10%. So for us, something being used is a success in itself, but something being used after our experiment, about 10%. And that ratio, I would be very surprised if anyone who was doing seriously new stuff could beat 1 in 10 being a success. If more than that is success, you're not trying new stuff properly. And that's quite a hard message to get across if, if production costs are tight. So how do you do that is you reduce the spend. You do as many new things, but do them cheaper rather than doing one thing better that you know will work. Because if you do that one thing that you know will work, one or two things will happen. It won't work. Or it will work, but it won't be innovative enough. Questions from the floor? Radiodan.org. It's a software stack and a, and a, a recipe for, for building the hardware bits to build um, a, a, a initially an IP radio um, that I mean, there's nothing new in that. I mean, you, can go, you can go and get recipes for those anywhere on the internet. But um, attempting to build a community around uh, uh, an, a new IP radio that, that at the moment um, is the beginnings of a platform to experiment on. And one of the attractive things about, I'll talk about this tomorrow, but attractive things about prototyping technologically with radio is its cheapness and its simpleness. FM, IP, audio, this is pretty straightforward. As soon as you start getting into video, also you know, video country by country and so on. The other attractive thing about radio is the aerial can literally be a coat hanger. Um, and if, if, it's an, if it's IP, the bit rate needed can be as little as 9.6 kilobits a second. So what we're trying to do is two things. We've not repeat the same 
startup systems every time when we do a new product with, with this IP. And the second is to demystify it to allow other people to build it as well. Good. If uh, one question at the back. What is the right um, a time slot for, for, for radio dramas to be played on, on, on radio? Because it seems like for you it's been working for a, for a really long time uh, for you to be able to be doing this for maybe since 1970s or something like that. Uh, what's, the right, what's, the, what's the right time slot for... I, I didn't get that bit, sorry. The right time slot uh, The, uh, the right time slot to play radio dramas so that you can be able to capture listeners' uh, attention. Uh, as in weekly, you mean? Weekly, daily, that sort of thing? Or what time at night? Or when? Do you mean when's it transmitted? No. The right time slot. So the Archers is repeated twice a day and then again at the weekends. Um, I think know your audience there, so yeah. I don't know. I'm not a scheduler. Uh, thank God. Um, uh, <coughs> um, uh, I, I think the key is, is that anything truly attractive and engaging, people will go and try and listen to it again. So you've then got to do two things. You've got to make a show that works live and you've got to make a show that works when, pe when people are listening again. Cool. Are there any further questions? Good. So we'd like to take the opportunity to thank George. The next thing that you have to do is uh, write a business plan of 15 million plus, and you two can...